Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, commentary contributing editor and uh, our special correspondent for all things counterintelligence and FBI, Eli Lake, host himself of the Reeducation podcast. Hi, Eli. Yeah, thanks so much for having me again, John. You bet. Okay, well, Eli, time for you to work your magic on this uh, startling story that broke yesterday that uh, the head of FBI counterintelligence in the New York office until 2018 uh, was arrested uh, coming back into the country on Saturday night or Sunday night on charges of I'm not quite I not quite sure I understand the charges specifically, but that he basically was funneling money or laundering money or something or other for this um uh oligarch, uh Ivan Deripaska. You wanna you wanna give well, us Well and, some... and there is some connection with all of this to an Albanian intelligence agents, which is strange as well. And you know, the the usual caveat here, which I think everybody should keep in mind, is that um, his lawyer has said he is going to contest the charges in court. So, and the uh, Justice Department has at times uh, overcharged and had to um, pull back those charges, most notoriously against um, the uh, company that was uh, alleged, alleged to be affiliated with um, the uh, Russian troll and bot campaign. Um, so let's just wait to hear what the defense lawyer says. But if this is if these allegations stick and they're true, and I do think that there's reason to think that this is serious. Um, well, then one of a senior FBI official in the New York office uh, who was in charge of counterintelligence and indeed participated in, but by no means led um, elements of the FBI's investigation into Trump and Russia um, had has a relationship, at least after he retired, with um, uh, a Russian oligarch named Oleg Deripaska. Well, that is an important point because, first of all, this is after he retired. They are the 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 money, the two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars that he is alleged to have gotten uh, illicitly uh, from uh, from Oleg uh, Deripaska came in twenty twenty one. So this would be three years after his retirement, and you could make the case, and I'm sure this is what his lawyers are going to make the case of. Again, we don't know what the payment system was or how secret it was and all that. But well, that, he, we um, know that you know, according to the indictment, he tried to hide the fact that he was being paid in this regard. OK, but it's yeah. like, OK, so he he's uh, he works for the DA's office and he quits the DA's office and becomes a defense attorney. I mean, that that will probably be the defense, which is OK. Yes, he worked for the FBI. He did counterintelligence. He retired. Now he's a businessman. And yeah, so he so Deripaska, whom he was investigating at some point, became a client. Big deal. He's allowed to have clients. He's a private citizen. And yes, he's using the 
skills that he that he uh, gained as an FBI agent to you know sell his wares but you know maybe you don't like that he does that but it's perfectly legal so it's just um a very daring I would say this, which is that one of the things that we've covered, you've covered, Eli, mm. in writing about the FBI as extensively as you have for commentary, is uh, the FBI's uh, sense of how important it is that its own reputation remain high and that, you know, its reputation is all that it has and its reputation and it needs to have a good reputation. And um, that makes this effort startling because, of course, this is bad for the FBI's reputation, and yet the FBI nonetheless pursued this angle against uh, Mr. McGonagall, uh, the uh, the former head of counterintelligence. Well, that is a that is a silver lining in all of this, but at the same time, I think it's really important for listeners to to realize that this guy Oleg Deripaska, until um, I would say 2016, 2017, was regarded by the very same um kind of counterintelligence you know russia hawks if you want to kind of come up with it, it as a potential i don't know i don't want to say fifth column but he was certainly considered kind of a potential weak link within russia's uh within putin's kind of oligarchy meaning he, he was a guy that we could turn or we could control there was an effort to turn him close to putin right but he was somebody we could work with to get and you know who was who was who was intimately involved in trying to turn oleg Deripaska was um Chris Steele, person responsible for the Steele dossier, and Chris Orr, uh, who was the senior um, Justice Department official who continued a relationship with Steele after um, the FBI dropped him as an informant when he when he went to David Korn of Mother Jones before the election uh, to talk about um, the um, Fakakta concocted case against Trump, which drove the country and uh, the Democratic Party bananas uh, to this day. But Deripaska was somebody who was seen as somebody who could be turned. He and so there were and the, the kinds of things that this guy was doing for Deripaska is exactly what Steele was doing for Deripaska. And, and you know, in terms of trying to lobby for him to get visas to come to the country, um, Fusion GPS, which also helped produce the Steele dossier, was employed by Deripaska's lawyers along with Steele to try to retrieve money that was owed to him by Paul Manafort. The point of all this is not to sort of wash wash it away, but until 2016-2017, the FBI turned a blind eye to this kind of activity with at least kosher uh, oligarchs. There was this distinction that was made, and Deripaska was on the kosher line. All of that has obviously changed, you know, for several reasons, not just because of the 2016 election. Obviously, you invasion of Ukraine has a lot to do with it as well, but the point is, is that it's one of these things where Deripaska was seen as OK for a while. Um, I don't know if like after 2018, it's hard to sort of say at this point. But that alone is not evidence that this guy was some sort of Russian agent. So Deripaska. And by the way, he isn't being charged, by the way, as being a Russian agent. He's not being charged. No, he's, it's Yeah, that's a, that's what's interesting. He's, right. he's being charged with a, with uh, doing things to undermine sanctions. And I think the case in New York and in D.C., it's more of like a traditional money laundering charge. That's correct. Right. So the sanctions were placed on Deripaska and his after after McGonagall's retirement. Right. That's, that's the, these were sanctions put in place 
in April of 2018, I think something like that. And, um, and, uh, he and a whole bunch of other Russians, uh, were personally sanctioned. And, uh, then he was charged with sanctions evasion, uh, at the end of September. Right. So it's possible what's going on here. Again, we're just in, you know, wild, crazy speculation here is that um, McGonagall has been arrested in an effort to squeeze him to make the case about the um, sanctions evasion. I mean, I, I it's possible that, that that that's what it is. I mean, it's it's also strange that he has this relationship with some Albanian intelligence and this former translator. I mean, there's a lot of things in this that are right. like red flags and very suggestive. But I like to go back to this, that if the government is going to charge you of being a spy, then they should charge you for being a spy and not come up with other charges that suggest that you might be a spy. Right. So this, there are two indictments, one yeah. in New York, one in Washington. The second indictment, according to the Washington Post, quote, accused McConnell of high of hiding payments totaling $225,000 that he allegedly received from a New Jersey man employed decades ago by an Albanian intelligence agency. The indictment yeah. also accused him of acting to advance that person's interests. Now, decades ago matters because... It it then only it matters in, in which Albanian block. government the person right. <laughs> was an intelligence agent. Was he you know, was he was he of the you know Marxist uh, Enverhoja government or was this after the fall of the Berlin Wall? Like it, you know, uh, he has not been charged with espionage. Um, I mean, I, I if if we would have this conversation five or six years ago, I would be in a much different place. But I have seen how the Justice Department can put in information when it chooses to in these indictments to lead people to think one thing or another when they don't when they don't have it. When we, we just we have too much now in front of us from Horowitz at Durham and the inspectors general and all these things that just show that the that the FBI and the Justice Department, when they get into how they're going to charge people and what they're going to say is they get they have so much latitude they can play so many games that I want to see the defense what the defense attorney says and how this plays out not because I have any whatever for this guy I don't I just don't trust the justice department on these high profile cases especially involving alleged connections to like you know potential russian espionage but that's when the 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 FBI is is going after others this is about themselves i mean so you, about one of their own so you you may think that their the standard would be a little different here or or the their their um comportment in 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 you know i just think that the, the latitude that 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 us attorneys have in terms of what kind of information they can make public they can create any kind of impression they want that's all. Okay, we should we yeah. should explain the structure here for people who don't necessarily understand it. So the FBI, of course, is an agency of the Justice Department. That's and right. there are 93 U.S. attorneys in the United States. And they, too, are officials of the Justice Department. They are in different branches. They are different. They have different responsibilities. But um, the funnel all goes up to the Attorney General, um, Merrick Garland. And so these are two different sides. You have the FBI. You have these two U.S. Attorney's offices issuing two separate indictments. And that's why uh, Eli is doing this sort of, uh, I just don't trust the Justice Department, even though we're talking about the FBI 
and U.S. attorneys, that there is something about the conduct of the overall Justice Department, uh, not just James Comey, who was head of the FBI, and not just, but that there is the, the overall Justice Department that um, has has been very dis- discomforting over the last... And, and, and this is a side note, but I just say, when former senior Justice Department people like Andrew Weissman are now ubiquitous media personalities, and in their ubiquity, they sound like stark, raving, partisan lunatics, I lose confidence in this broader legal elite that ends up that we're supposed to trust as being, you know, down the middle, just interpreting the law. Well, there's, there's also many yeah, the, formers who go on who I now I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't realize you were that crazy. But this is important because the media piece of this, uh, what I noticed about this story, I mean, you can you can, you know, look it up online and see it on some uh, like NBC News's uh, website and whatnot. The New York Times buried it on page A20 of the print. I get the print New York Times. I like it. This story in the major mainstream media is not front page news. And maybe it's not front page front page news, but they I've I've noticed that there's a tendency when it comes to like looking at whether there's corruption within an institution that right now, you know, at, at the time they really wanted to to go after Trump for, it's downplayed. So I mean, maybe it isn't front page news, but during if this had happened under Trump's administration, I suspect it would have been on the above the fold A1 of the, you know. New York Times, because it would have suggested I, some sort of collusion with Russia. You know, all the all the stuff about Russiagate that was that was front page news for months. No, we. I mean, people are in that universe saying that this is like evidence that somehow the FBI investigation was corrupted into Trump. Russia. Okay, yeah. So let's so go. The with conspiracy that. theorizing has yeah. already launched itself. No, so the conspiracy theory runs as follows already, as I can tell, which is. So this guy quits in 2018 and goes to work at some point or other for Oleg Deripaska. Oleg Deripaska had a business arrangement with Paul Manafort, who was, of course, the Trump campaign chairman for not very long uh, in 2016 and was fired after news stories in August revealed the depths of his connection to the um, Russian-friendly government in Ukraine. And so Deripaska, so then, so of course the line is that Putin wanted Trump to become president in 2016. And Rudy Giuliani kept saying at the, toward the end of the Trump-Hillary race, that he was getting leaks from the FBI New York office about how terrible Hillary was and how, you know, she was going to be, you know, arrested by the marshal of the, of the Supreme court or whatever. (laughs) Um, And then Comey reopens the investigation into Hillary on October 28th, 2016 and arguably flips the results of the 2016 election. Therefore, because Rudy said he there were people in the FBI talking to him, we now have a new conspiracy theory about Putin's effect on the 2016 election, which is that Oleg Deripaska got Charles McGonagall to leak to Rudy Giuliani about Comey and Hillary, and then uh, magically got Anthony Weiner to open... Hillary's laptop, Huma's laptop, and yada, 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 Trump becomes president. 
This is actually a theory <sighs> that was seriously being bandied about yesterday afternoon. And Downplaying Anthony Weiner's sexting of underage, you know. Yeah. But meanwhile, girls, but yeah, <laughs> isn't is it wasn't McGonagall involved in the Carter Page warrant? That that was what I got from the Time story I read on it. Oh, I, I mean, he might he was involved, he was but involved the point in the is that he wasn't the, the okay. So here's why this theory fails. He was involved in the 2016 investigation into the Trump Russia connections, which found no connection between Trump and Russia. Right. <clears throat> the Kremlin infiltration of America goes very deep, according to Tristan Snell, who's a lawyer and a popular figure on Twitter, <clears throat> and that I think is his entire pedigree. But that's sort of, that superficially yeah. well here's what i quoting uh, no. the times okay <laughs> this this says of mcgonagall he had a role in the investigation into into russian interference in the 2016 election led by robert Mueller, asking judges to renew wiretaps on carter page a former trump campaign advisor so okay so the the scandal relating to carter page's wiretaps though I think is later, but we're not sure. So in other words, no, 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 no. It's the same. No, no. It's 2016. It's the same. Okay. In same 2016. Period. So yeah. late Carter 2016, Page October. was the unpaid yeah. Trump person on the foreign relations side who went to Russia. And, um, and so they, they were, you were not allowed to wiretap an American. You have to, you know, the FISA. But you have to, you, you have to, you have to convince. You have to court. have probable cause. Right. That a crime had been committed to achieve a FISA warrant for the wiretapping of someone without his knowledge. This happened with Carter Page. And part of what Eli has written for us over the years has been about the absolute scandal of the handling of Carter Page's surveillance, where the FBI, in order to renew the Carter Page warrants, was using leaks, its own leaks to, in to get news the initial stories. right. Well, also okay, the, the the key point is that there was a discussion about whether to wiretap Page in August, September, twenty sixteen, and what and they didn't, and they did other techniques. They sent in under they sent um they sent you know confidential informants to talk to him. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. And da, 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 da. And then also he had been cooperating with the CIA on things having to do with Russia. He'd also, by the way, before cooperated with the FBI on other investigations. So it was considered like, all right, well, it's weird that he took this trip, but we don't really have enough to even ask for a FISA. That was actually a responsible sort of position, I believe, of a Justice Department attorney who was working on all this and said, no, 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 no. And then and then they started to come back to me if you get more. And the more was this opposition research paid for by Hillary Clinton's campaign, which turned out to be a fiction. Right. And then when they learned that this, the key piece of evidence they used that got them over the top internally to even apply for the warrant was BS. And the original, you know, subsource who collected it, this Russian guy who used to work for the Brookings Institution, when that happened, they never told the judges that oops. in fact that none of this oops this didn't i'm sorry this was bad intel instead they said we spoke to the subsource and he was credible and they literally leave out the part about how he was credible by saying that none of the stuff in the actual dossier was true so it's like 
that's the sort of games that they play, which is again why I'm so skeptical until I see that you know, let's right. see the just the due process at work. And I wouldn't have said that before all of this other stuff. Now, back to the flaw of this conspiracy theory about which which conspiracy oh mcgonagall you know i I feel like i need to put up that big mood board exactly we need we need the string we sunny in philadelphia the charlie we need the 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 colored yarn stuff like that need my conspiracy wall the problem is that we know from multiple like audits and congressional oversight and all kinds of documentation that the investigation into trump's campaign was handled and led by Washington, D.C.'s senior leadership at the FBI, which was unusual. This is an important distinction. And that while McGonagall may have participated in it, he was not leading that investigation. And the people who were leading that investigation, we know a tremendous amount about, like Peter Strzok and his, you know, text to Lisa Page about how I'm not going to, we won't let it happen and all this other stuff. So if you're trying to make the argument that there was a bad apple who, uh, you know, was foiling this investigation and the FBI would have found the goods had he not been placed where he was, then you have to explain to me how all of the other people who were outranking him on this investigation um, were were either hoodwinked or how all of the other information we have about how the investigation turned up all these dead leads and, you know, everything else, you know, wasn't the case. You can't just say, oh, well, there's this new piece of information and let me retcon it. So but tell this, you that but oh, this is this is but that's a perfect sorry to interrupt you but this is a perfect example of I've been struggling to kind of you know put all the pieces together because there's so many there's a lot of moving parts like if you're not someone who followed this in in granular detail it's hard to follow but I was thinking what a striking contrast to the public response and the media response when Robert Hansen was was uh, arrested as having been spying for Russia within the agency for you know more than a decade Um, there was a kind of easy a very easy narrative which was this guy's a traitor we caught him that's good for the country and it's striking to me how because of the decline of trust in our institutions and particularly the FBI post Trump and all the chaos of the Trump years it's hard to even make that statement right you can't say here's here's a guy who looks like he's been doing some bad stuff I'm glad the agency caught him now we can you know put put uh, procedures in place to prevent that from happening again it's just very chaotic and I'm I, and I think for the I'm thinking is this is from if you're an average American trying to follow the story you just throw up your hands and go ah oh, they're all corrupt or oh it nobody's everybody's lying or all these warrants turned out to be false it's it's very difficult to find the thread that you can because the institution itself has lost our trust and that I think is I mean I'd be curious to hear Eli your thoughts about how how the Hansen news when it broke versus these kinds of stories now. Well, like when, I mean, the difference the is also policing. They, yeah. Hansen was charged with being a spy. Right. Okay. And he was a spy and he was arrested while he was still working at the FBI. Right now. Uh, and he was doing things that were like, un- he was, you know, they caught that they found the dead drops. I mean, they, it was a lot of right. things that they, they did the financial. They made a made for TV movie about it. I mean, it was. They made, yeah. They also <laughs> they made, made a, a real movie. Cinematic and a, movie, yeah. which was pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Um, Cooper. I mean, listen, I, again, I don't want to defend this guy because I think these are serious charges and I'm glad to see that they're, you know, kind of, we're now in a new in- enforcement environment, but it was again, I mean, just look at Christopher Steele, Christopher Steele, uh, admittedly, he was working for the MI6, obviously. He was a British spy. But I'm saying this was a normal thing. People who had jobs, the FBI or the CIA or our allied you know, equivalent services, 
would put in their careers, they would retire in their late 40s or early 50s, and then they would make back, they would make their fortunes, not fortunes, but they would make they would make the real money, as it were, uh, as you know, as as you said earlier, John, as defense attorneys, where they would be working for. And one of the things you could do is you couldn't work for every Russian oligarch, but you could certainly work for a guy like Oleg Deripaska, who was considered to be a man with whom we could do business until about 2016, 2017. And even when there was that big thing about the sanctions on Deripaska in 2018, Mitt Romney, no Russia dove, was, you know, took the position that Deripaska shouldn't be sanctioned. So did Mnuchin. I mean, uh, Mnuchin, I'm sorry, at the Treasury Department. There, there were people in this world. I happen to be a Russia hawk, so I'm like, yeah, go after Deripaska. But there were, you know, reasonable people who could disagree with that. And they would argue that, well, you know, this is not good. I mean, there were economic reasons. It's a complicated question. But uh, but just saying that you had a relationship with Deripaska after you retired alone, to me, is not evidence that this guy was a spy. It showed that he had his hand in the cookie pot past the time when it was OK to have your hand in that cookie pot, cookie jar. But believe me, in, for the for for many years under Robert Mueller, the FARA office, the Foreign Agents Registration Act office, the FBI and the Justice Department pretty much turned a blind eye to this kind of stuff involving Russia. How do we know this? We know this in part because John Durham uncovered that this guy, Charles Dolan, who was a longtime Democratic operative and probably had a role in feeding bunk into the Steele dossier, was a longtime unregistered foreign lobbyist for Russia. And nobody cared because until the 2016 election, no one, not social media companies, not the FBI, everyone was like, yeah, people do business with Russia, blah, 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 blah. And, then, you know, that's it happened. And it's even worse in Europe. Can I can I sort of pull back? Yeah. And Noah, Noah, think about this. So we, we keep talking about how Trump may be making a category error by focusing all of his emotional attention on the engraved injustice done to him in the 2020 election, supposedly, and the stealing of the 2020 election. And the electorate isn't wants to talk about the future and not the past, and he can't talk about anything but the past. I wonder whether this, there's this similar addiction in the Democratic circles. I mean, obviously not the leading candidate, whoever, the, not Biden exactly, but to the 2016 narrative. Like, they can't get around or over the election was stolen for Trump in 2016. And every time there is one minor, teeny little hint of a story about the 2016 election and the investigation and this and that, it, they just go right back to ground zero and talking about this matter. Well, what you're describing is partisanship. Uh, that's just <clears throat> the basic fact of being plugged in and tuned into your particular issue set, that you're substantially aware of all the details and minutiae around it, and it vexes you. And you want other people to be vexed by it because it's serious, it's important, it's relevant. But they're not. <laughs> One of the problems I wrote about this in, uh, in, I think it was called the paradox of being plugged in for the Commentary Magazine website is that, uh, you know, for just taking me, for example, I can't wrap my head around why the CDC has a popular rating. You know, 55% of people think it's a, it's a great institution. And they probably do for holistic reasons. They take a holistic view of the thing. They don't take my very uh, narrow 
uh, sort of manic and addled view of the CDC that has that robbed me and my children of a year of my life and has been sending contradictory signals and listens only to uh, elite opinion and forms health policy around whatever's happening on primetime cable news on CNN. That's what drives me nuts, but it doesn't drive anybody else nuts. And this is the same phenomenon, for example, the FBI, which has an equally popular rating and because the public takes a holistic view of things. Well, the, the um, FBI's they don't popular want rating to... is because the Democrats are more, are more into the FBI now. So and the Republican... That's the partisanship. That right yeah, there is enough. what it is. Because yeah. what they take is a holistic view of a law enforcement agency that keeps them safe. That's what they think. And they right. balance and weigh that against what they know and what we know to be true about these various scandals, which they happen to be prosecuting at the moment. And we're talking about a guy who's indicted. It's not like this guy's getting away scot-free. It's a it's a it's a actually far more healthy. Approach yeah, I agree. I, in fact, and, if, if it turns out this guy's as bad as they say, it's great for the it's it's good for restoring the public trust of the FBI. And most people are not ideological. Most voters are not ideological and they are future oriented. They are oriented towards solutions to the issues that matter to them, which are forward looking uh, in ways that partisans are not. Partisans are very much engaged in in an effort to retroactively seek vindication for their particular positions, particularly when they end when the story ends ambiguously. Uh, ends is not the right word for it, but you know, retreats from the front pages ambiguously. Um, I'm as guilty of that as anybody else, but it's it's a it's a hindrance for political actors who have to appeal to a partisan base because they're all plugged in and everybody's talking about everybody's talking in terms and with affectation and high emotional energy that just doesn't register with most people. In fact, well, it's kind it's of a also- it's also hard to know when the when the moment comes between an institution that has some bad apples that need to be taken care of versus an institution that's in full on rot. Right. And and there comes a mo- I think with the FBI, we reached a moment where we're like, yeah, it might be some institutional rot. And I agree with Noah about the CDC. There came a moment where you can just you can either blame like, you know, the head of the CDC at the time or this person or that person who sets a particular policy and go, they're just bad. If we got them out, the institution itself is fine. But I think a lot of people now look at some of these large government institutions and say, we just think you guys are all a mess. And it's not even a partisan judgment. It's just you don't seem to know how to do your own job and you seem to have a lot of corruption. And that kind of creep of corruption is is very bad for institutional trust. And I, I feel like, I mean, obviously you wrote a great piece about this for us, Eli, but, you know, the idea of institutional rot that requires reform. Tebby Troy wrote a great piece about, you know, the same thing issue with the CDC. These institutions do need some major reform. So finding these bad apples is part of that. But maybe some of the attention isn't on it because it's just a really big problem. Well, you well, know, I what's mean, a, it. it, 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 it you know who does know how to do their job and what what brought this this uh, begonical to light um, and an institution that I continue to trust the NYPD. It was an NYPD sergeant who 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 saw as a red flag this um, weird uh, sort of treatment that uh, a, who the who the story refers to as Agent One, who I guess was the go between between uh, between uh, McGonagall and Deripaska. Uh, 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 Deripaska, uh uh, uh, McGonagall got that agent's daughter some sort of uh, liaison situation with the NYPD, and a sergeant there was like, "What is this? What this 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 seems weird." He to saw me. the nepo baby. Yeah. He's like, yep. "That's a nepo baby." <laughs> but I can already hear <laughs> the horseshoe flag. of uh, of you know police reform libertarians and socialists locking arms around this one no knock warrant that the NYPD executed in two thousand nine that they just can't let go of. And how dare you give them that kind of credit? Yeah. Like that's, but I mean, that's look, the trap. 
<clears throat> the not letting go of. I'm glad you used that phrase because this is what's haunting me now as I think this through. You're describing this as a partisanship, you know, negative partisanship, battle of partisanship. But it connects to something deeper, not only in the American psyche, but maybe in psyches in general, right? Which is our minds go to conspiracy theory. It's a it's a it's a hardwired quality of the human brain. And we spent we've spent 60 years now <clears throat> with people who are consumingly obsessed with the Kennedy assassination and the causes and the factor and who and who do what blah blah. Three generations. Um, and that a lot of that happened before the internet when conspiracy theories became a lot and communities of conspiracies became a lot easier to both organize, keep going feed information to, feed crap to, all of that. I just, I feel like we see these warring conspiracy theories left and right now that we are never going to be done with. Give you an example. So we were talking about just before we got on air. Uh, so somebody finally did the kind of um, forensic study of the 2022 election in Arizona. Carrie Lake, of course, the uh, the gubernatorial candidate, um uh Senate wait. Gubernatorial Senator. It's gubernatorial candidate. Uh I'm sorry, I just I I had a brain Lake freeze there. Senate. Yeah, right. So uh and of course she claims the election was stolen and there was like, you know, hijinks in Maricopa County, blah, 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 blah. So somebody just did the very simple anti-fraud check, which is how many votes did so-and-so get versus how many votes did so-and-so get and discovered that the undervote, in other words, for Carrie Lake, votes cast by voters who voted straight ticket Republican but did not vote for Carrie Lake, meaning there were deliberate choice had been made on those ballots, obviously, to leave. It's either, I don't know if she was at the top of the ballot or in the second position because there was also a Senate race, to leave her blank, not to vote for anybody else, but to leave that not to choose for governor was in excess of 40,000 votes. And she lost by 18,000 votes. This is the proof that the election was not won by fraud. This is how we know, for example, you know, we know that um, Herschel Walker, this wasn't even the undervote. This was the actual vote got, I don't know, what did he get? Nine points, seven points less than, than, uh, then Brian Kemp, the governor in his reelection, five points. I can't remember what the number was. This is the check. Check is voters went for, you know, voters went here but didn't go here. Clearly, that's a mark of some, a deliberate choice being made by voters. That is the check against the conspiracy theory that Carrie Lake, had, the election was robbed. You think that's going to end generations of people who are going to be massaging every piece of information they possibly can to prove that Carrie Lake had the election stolen from her in 2022. These things are not, you cannot sway people from the conclusion that they've reached before they, before they get the evidence and they will believe whatever evidence they can muster that isn't even evidence and we'll dis when we'll we'll ignore the evidence that disproves it. 
I, I, I would, I would push back a little bit about oh, our minds being hardwired, and here's why: because I mean, I, I think you're there is some truth to that that we we want an explanation for things that we can't understand, and sometimes when there is a messy, like you know, sometimes it's not a simple. But, but I understand that we we want to grasp to something that sort of confirms our priors sometimes and everything like that. But there's another element here, and that the it was bad enough in the sick in after Kennedy's assassination that his assassin was murdered on camera. And then the person who murdered his assassin died from a heart attack a few months later in a jail cell, all which is very suspicious, all which, you know, sounds like it's ripped out of a Robert Ludlum novel. But then add to that all of the lies that are exposed to the course of the next few years in the 1960s with, you know, whether it's the Pentagon Papers or, you know, various kinds of corruption or unions all these institutions are exposed as not being on the level and having lied to the public and at that point that's when you have that kind of when you have these institutions which we're supposed to trust losing the confidence on their own that's when people do turn to these conspiracy theories so it, it's part of the environment so i think that if we have the kinds of reforms that commentary magazine has been calling for in places like the cdc and the fbi it will go a long way to sort of maybe pushing a lot of these, there will always be people who are conspiracy theorists, but we were fine in the 20th century because they were largely cranks, even on the Kennedy conspiracy stuff. Even Oliver Stone, I mean, influential people can be conspiracy theorists and but, make major I, motion I pictures mean, in Hollywood, and it still is okay. We we managed to survive. It's when I, the institutions I don't know, the, the under their credibility. The biggest conspiracy theory in human history had a pretty bad record in the 20th century. We made it out okay. of it, but uh, I, don't I know. understand. Okay, that's a fair point. <laughs> yeah. You're talking about Nazi Germany, and there's a lot of other things about that. But <laughs> I mean, I, okay, we can go bigger enough. than that. But yeah, I mean, no, no. But my but my point here is that if you want to fight conspiracy theories, you have to have accountability from these institutions, and you have to, you know, punish people who deceive over many years of these from these institutions. But I think there's John's another point, is that the conspiratorial among us, those inclined towards that and those friendly towards that and those who are just even like, you know, looking looking at it, you know, kind of glancingly, um they're not inclined towards that kind of thinking. They would not find any reformation to be sufficient because the the conspiracy suffices to satisfy so many other psychological demands that it cannot be let go of. And my point I, is that yeah, you're always going to have some of those people, but they're manageable. The only time when it becomes a real problem but, and it takes over a political party is when you have the the actual institutions, which are supposed to kind of hold the center, you know, squander their credibility because they keep lying and and they're so incompetent. But, but here's what's not manageable. I think there's a there's another exacerbating feature here, in addition to the decades of of institutional misconduct. And I agree. I don't know that we're hardwired for conspiracy theory, but we are internet wired for conspiracy theory. And uh, I think you know the old uh, joke about you know you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your old your own facts. That was true right up Daniel to Patrick the moment Moynihan. that that there was broadly available internet, um, because now everyone does have their own facts. They're not facts, but it, that doesn't matter. Um, so you cannot put anything to rest. Um, and this comes up not just in conspiracy theories, but also in debate. I mean, when we've been talking about the gas stove thing, there are people who will, will gather their their pro facts and they will gather their anti facts and, and, and their scientific studies and then their anti scientific studies. And, and, and 
this is a huge problem in trying to put it all to all to rest. I I, I think that you you underestimate the degree to what yeah I think Abe is making the point like something changed uh, in the way information is transmitted and communities of interest are gathered that um, curation and you know that, yeah just makes it a lot easier uh, for these theories to you know to have they, the purchase that they have. They also, you know, even when you had pre-internet small groups of people nurturing and and feeding each other's, you know, conspiracy theories, they tended to stay within a bounded community. Now you can have those same people, but at scale, and then eventually the conspiracy theory can break through, bringing in more people who might, you know, kind of dabble in it. That's, that's actually, it's the scaling problem here that, I mean, even if you have like crazy theories that you've gathered all your facts on, but that was the whole QAnon thing, right? People would say like, I've done the research. And, and by research, they meant spending hours and hours online doing deep dives into things and trying to find connections between them. People have always done that to Eli's earlier point. Like we want to make connections. We want things to make sense when very complicated structures in society seem to be um, opaque, seem to be unaccountable, seem to be, you know, telling the rest of us, you know, the the sheep what to do, people, I think that actually also heightens the conspiracy theory. And then you add those tools that technology give us, and it's it's a very challenging combination to fight against. But the, that's well, we, why we the have, institutional stuff is so important. We have all of these pieces in the vaccine, anti-vax, Yes. argument right exactly. uh, which is which is the exact same thing which is about the institutional failure uh and the and the and the and the institutional opacity and then if you deal with 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 any anti-vaxxer online they will bury you in in um libraries of quote studies you know um they have their own facts they don't care what what facts you're you're quoting from um and it it and and they have they have made tremendous gain inroads into sort of the mainstream view of the vaccine. They just have. Well, and not just the COVID vaccine, but all childhood vaccination, which rates for which are not going to be in the, in the ensuing years are going to unfortunately probably not be good. Look, it's interesting because uh, speaking of the vaccine stuff, so I I having been very outspoken about how stupid people were not to get the vaccine back in twenty twenty one. Um, I've been getting a lot of emails over the last couple of months going, oh, now you say the vaccine is in the, now don't you owe me an apology? And what's the matter with that? I'm like, these fact, these um, categories are not the same in 2021. In fact, this is, there's an interesting thing. I'm not a scientist and I don't really understand this, but the vaccination against the first, you know, against the original COVID-19 and against the, you know, and against the the first, uh, the Delta variant were extraordinarily effective. Paul Offit, who is like the, like one of the great heroes of the 20th century in medicine, guy who kind of um, had saved hundreds of thousands of, of 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 lives, children's lives through various through the discovery of various treatments, um, has said that the problem now with the with the current variants is that the body bodily response to the uh, to the fir- the for the variant of the first COVID nineteen and the Delta variant 
was so strong that it's having the paradoxical effect of leaving the body somewhat um, exposed to the later variants to which it does not respond. There is a healthy immune response in the body, which is what you want from a vaccine. That's why it's a vaccine. You have a continuing immune response, but it's not to the current iteration, which is why people going on and saying, you know, the White House saying everybody needs to go get the bivalent booster because that's going to protect you against the current COVID. That's not true. All of the evidence we have is that the bivalent booster is not protecting people, is not vaccinating people against the variant that is now 80% or something like that. So it is perfectly legitimate to say in 2021, you were an idiot not to get the vaccine. And that today, not that you would be an idiot to get the vaccine, but that you should not expect the vaccine to protect you the way it did in 2021. But that two-step is not good for the, but the fact that we have the the fact that the bivalent booster doesn't work against the current, you know, against the current iteration of COVID, um, that is now being used to retrocess and say the vac- the original vaccine was bad and that, you know, there was an outrage that people were forced also, to take it. To Abe's point about, you know, the internet, and I'm I'm not not a Luddite, I don't, you know, go after technology for technology's sake. But there is something to be said about the level of community that can form around these sort of things and and how attractive that is to have community like now and anytime a celebrity drops dead has a cardiac event <laughs> a lot of very prominent people go out there and say oh there you go he got the vax he got they got vaxed that was a vax event and in a, in a, in a, the before times that would be pretty ghoulish and a lot of people would look at you and say you're you're a crank and saying something that's really kind of gross i mean this person has family um, but now you have you have a built-in community around this thing and the and the sense of exclusivity and the sense of um having the curtain peeled back for you. Um, that's you know a warm, fuzzy feeling, and it's something that people have always sought. But in the time before when you'd have to get mimeographed Bircher newsletters to be a part of this community, you know, there was there was certainly less instant gratification. The little food pellet didn't drop down for you. You didn't get that that boost that you get from being that kind of person today and the internet certainly plays a part in that and there's the other part that the internet plays which gets to uh eli's current piece in the in commentary uh american nomenclatura about uh about twitter and the and the uh, and the efforts to suppress certain types of conversations on twitter that um there were two faces of the covid war right one of which was there were these people who were arguing you shouldn't get the vaccine. And then there was a whole world of people who were saying, you have to make sure that people who say you shouldn't get the vaccine, no one is allowed to hear them. We need to figure out ways to to quiet their voices down and, and, and de-amplify them so that their wrong thinking doesn't get out to people. And that act of suppression of course, only strengthens, this is the Obi-Wan Kenobi. If you strike me down, I shall be stronger than you ever realize. Like if you silence Alex Berenson, 
you're going to get 10,000 Alex Berenson's in his place who are going to say there's a reason they're silencing him. There's, this is tens of billions of dollars in money for Pfizer and Moderna and, and uh, you know, and whoever and, and uh, Johnson and Johnson. And therefore, you know, somebody's ox is being gored and they're they're shutting these people down. Jay Bhattacharya, you know, people like that. And, and I just think that it's that I agree with you that there is a difference in, in, in it, there's a difference that the Internet makes. And and that was a very good way of putting it, Noah, about the food pellet coming down more instantly. You could argue it's the difference between powder and crack cocaine or something. But on the other hand, I just think that we have to figure out a way that you can't you can't go in the other direction of what the social media companies, along with the government and other groups, did to try to suppress these kinds of dissent, not only because they often suppress true information and important information, but also because the, I think the only chance we have is for there is for I know it's it, they have, you know, I and mean, you're right, Abe, it's like they'll bury you in these alleged facts and everything like that. But the only hope we have is that if that if everybody can kind of meet in a common place and enough people can push back and there is this kind of open discourse, so maybe you're not going to convince the person who, you know, claims to sort of have it all figured out and have done their QAnon research. But there are people who might observe that conversation and will say, wait a second, this doesn't make sense or that study doesn't say that or something like that. Well, and we, that's we, where you can contain the problem. We do know that works with vaccination too. doctors yeah. who sit down with their anti-vax patients and have conversations where they listen yeah. to whatever conspiracy theories and question them in a in a in a way that is inviting discussion. So acknowledging that not that their views are legitimate, but acknowledging they have the right to hold views that yes. might be challenged yes. and they. The back and forth allows for a, a conversation, a window to open for some people to change their minds. And that doesn't happen online very well, often. The, the difference between skepticism and contrarianism, I mean, one can lead right. you to the other, but a reflexive contrarianism that leads you to right. reject anything that represents elite consensus is poison, mind poison. But you, you, also, you also have a rejection of the American character in this sense, which is that you had a terrible confluence of events with covid where you had particularly in liberal states even though trump was president and all of that you had liberal say you had liberal governors seizing on powers to control things that politicians in the united states had not controlled ever before how many people could sit in a restaurant what the transit schedule was you know, were, could could you, you know, taking, locking playgrounds, doing all kinds of stuff that spoke against the idea that the politics that we live in a country in which politicians work for us and we don't work for the politicians, all of this done in the name of, a, of an unprecedented emergency. And we got to the point where you had the culture saying, you're just going to get yourself vaccinated. I don't care whether you want to or not. You're going to be fired. You know, we're going to name you. We're going to like, we're going to name you on social media. We're going to, and all of that was a complete rejection of the American character, which is to say, this is an individualist country. Maybe that's an ethos and a myth, and but it is a country in which the rights reside with the individual. And what you say to the individual who has rights is what you have 
as a person with rights is a responsibility to your family and your friends and your grandparents and all of that to make sure that your behavior you you with rights comes come responsibilities and you need to be responsible and do responsible things and i i'm literally not going to treat you like a child i'm you are i'm treating you like a child by saying you are going to line up like you did in high school and get the polio vaccine on the sugar cube like that is not the way these societies were and they pushed buttons all over the country with people who would otherwise i think have been perfectly willing this- to get the vaccine but it all ran into the don't tread on me gadsden you know the 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 gadsden uh, slogan and all of that and and created this unholy mess that we're still living with two years later but that this is such an important point because the people who made those mistakes before are continuing to make them um in other contexts i'm thinking now of and and i'm saying bring this up in part because it just really annoyed me um our vice president kamala harris on the anniversary of roe v wade you know gave this ridiculous speech where she was she cited the declaration of independence but she removed the word life she said you have these rights to liberty and the pursuit of happiness because she didn't want to say and she in fact did not use the word life at all in this talk that she gave the word life is there for a reason life liberty and the pursuit of happiness now if you're if you're an um, anti-abortion uh rights activist you see you understand that word life to mean life that begins a conception if you're you know not if you're an abortion rights supporter, you have a different interpretation. I get that. But the fact that she removed it from the Declaration of Independence, one of the few documents that most Americans have a vague understanding of and can kind of recite bits and parts of, it was done for purely partisan purposes to make a political point with the assumption that anyone who challenged her would she would, you know, she could kind of dissemble about. But th- again, this is why conservatives care a lot about history. It's why we care a lot about what our elected officials say about our country's values. And she was making a statement about our values, citing one of our you know, most important documents. And she did it wrong. She she purposefully removed edited out, censored some of the language in that document to score a political point. People don't like that either. Like it, it used to be our politicians could stand around. They would cite, you know, the Constitution and the and the and the declaration all for their own political ends. But at least they cited it correctly. You might you might disagree with their interpretation, but at least they got the words right. I OK, rant over. getting the words right. I, I feel like that that was a it was deliberate, a bizarre uh, example of a progressive cauliflower ear on the part of her and her staff and everything like that, which is, oh, if we use the word life, there are going to be all these tweets about how, oh, look, Kamala Harris said life in relation to abortion. No, 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 no. So we'll just take the word life out of the most Such famous <laughs> phrase, defining phrase of the American experiment. Well, they they removed they stopped talking that about among these are, too. Are the among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is right. the defining phrase of the American yes. experiment. Yes, you don't, you know, it's like saying "thou shalt kill." I mean, it's not like saying "thou shalt," kill, but you know, it's like what is you know. Well, but this is it, the equality a, it's a, it's equity a, it's a, debate too. It, it's it's a it's a it's as American as a birthing persons. <laughs> I, I prefer pie. chest feeder, Eli. I, I, I anyway, I mean, it's, chest feeder. right. I mean, yeah. uh, just to on very briefly, but you're absolutely right, John, about the gas and flag. Don't tread on me kind of American character and the instinct. 
There's another part of the American character, too, which is that we have always had cranks. We have always had kind of not necessarily conspiracy theorists, Mm -hmm. although there have been conspiracy theorists, um, you know, from the very beginning. And it's been okay. The anti-Masons ring a bell? Yes. Absolutely. The anti-Masons. But I'm thinking about like the founding of the state of Utah. I mean, there's always been communities of people who go west or whatever. And they're like, okay, you know what? We're going to we're going to do things our way. And we've always been okay with it in this country. And to a certain extent, we love to celebrate somebody who was skeptical or questioned some elite consensus, which was wrong. And then it turned out that, you know, wait a second, now we do it the right way or something like that. That's a very American story. Um, We tend to root for those people. You could argue the founding fathers, of course, were like questioning the elite consensus of, you know, uh, you know, patrilineal descent and monarchies and so forth. So. I don't know. I just sort of feel like you're it's the, we have to accept that this is a country where people are allowed to have wildly different views. It goes back to like the freedom of conscience, the freedom of religion in this country. And like there's something that broke over the pandemic where we were no longer allowed to do that. And it was un-American, which is why I called the essay American Nomenclatura, because to me, this this emphasis on like finding all disinformation and misinformation and expunging it from, you know, mainstream social media platforms is a very un-American impulse. I mean, it's interesting because, of course, and we should probably wrap up, but, you know, this is a form of pre like you would assume liberals and leftists don't. The idea of uh of saying you know we can't let this information be retailed is 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 a is a form of prevention you are you are preventing things from being heard and then you're going to claim that that's a way of preventing bad things from happening that they honestly think they're preventing yeah. the next january 6 by by controlling information that way they, they think they, they, it is they a do, noble they, cause yes they do believe that we already have the evidence of that in the fight within the january 6 committee on the release of this report that was going to be it's not just about january 6 you see here where they talk about the you know the string board carrie carrie matheson string board on homeland like this person tweeted this on December 6th. And then on December 7th, there was a subreddit that said that. And then on December 11th, so somebody cr- said oh. they were going to have a meeting in Maripost and, you know, in Maricopa County. By and the way, the, the Justice Department the- rejects that entire line of like argument, which is like that somehow Trump's tweets, the Oath Keepers tried to make that defense. And they said, and they look, they just got convicted right. yesterday. Right. You know, they got, they're, they're going to jail for a long time. It's ridiculous. But there was a oh. whole body of opinion working on the January 6th committee, of course, who wanted basically to say that it wasn't just the crimes that were committed on January 6th, but that that but that an evil was let into the national bloodstream through social media that was as bad as January 6th. There was the necessary precondition for January 6th. And they had an 820-page report that Liz Cheney had to say, don't you poison, don't poison right. our findings with this nonsense. Like people are allowed, people are actually allowed to think the election was stolen. What they're not allowed to do is invade the Capitol building and and spray people with bear spray and hit them with, you know, metal objects. That's what they're not allowed to do, but they are allowed to think that the election was stolen. That is not anything that the Congress of the United States 
should be saying is somehow outlawed. Anyway, um, this is a very complicated mad. It's very hard to have complicated discussions about this. Anyway, Eli Lake, thank we you have very it, much. We have it here at the commentary podcast. Thank you so much. Eli's piece, American <laughs> Nomenclature. You can find it at commentary.org. And of course, his re-education podcast at Apple, Google Play, Stitcher. Uh, Noah Rothman's uh, piece, The Worldwide COVID Revolts, which continues which continues to be a, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're on day three or day four of the Jacinda Ardern re- resignation story. And it becomes ever clearer that you know, that she is getting out of Dodge before the mob comes for her because of the way she handled COVID and the mood shift in the country of New Zealand toward her. Um, So that's there too, the worldwide COVID revolts. Abe Greenwald's piece on Cormac McCarthy and Christine Rosen's piece on clickbait. Uh, These are all there for your perusal at commentary.org. And we'll be back tomorrow. So for Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.